Good morning, everybody. It's a great blessing for me to come and bring you the good news of Jesus Christ again today. The foundation of Dynamic Love Ministries is the grace of God, and grace is then defined as the power whereby God brings forth His life in us, which He mercifully just given he just gave it to us. That is what this is all about. It's about God's original dream that he had for humanity to bring forth his kingdom in the earth and God's power whereby he brings it forth in the earth. So thank you for slotting in and allowing me to serve you with the good news of Jesus Christ today. Today I'm going to be talking about the compassion of God. and We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 10. The reason why I want to talk about the compassion of God is simple. Compassion and love really flows together. If we look at Luke chapter 10, we find that the end of the parable, where it talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, is about going and doing likewise, being compassionate in your own life and having compassion on other people. Now, uh, if God has come to share his life with us, we need to look at how that is made possible. In order to be a person that can share in the life of God, there's something that God has done that brings this compassion forth in us. God has not come to share his life with us just based on uh, uh, outward commandment wherein we need to now go and be compassionate. And if we're not compassionate, then we are going to stand before God and then God is going to say, we don't have five compassion points in heaven, therefore, uh, you know, we might, must be punished or we must go through some form of a purification or something like that in order to get enough compassion. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Compassion is a fruit of being loved by God. So if you ever want to be a person that has got compassion on other people, you need to look at God's compassion towards you and his compassion towards you will produce his life in you. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Imagine a whole earth flooded with people that is just like Jesus, a person that is willing to give his life to someone else. I mean, that will be a wonderful place uh, to think of uh, Jesus everywhere, wherein a person can love on another person, not to get life from it, but because of the abundance of life that is inside him. I think the kingdom of God on earth and what it is all going to amount to in the end of in, in the end of the day is going to be a place where people still have their own personality, but they are flooded with the very life of God, where it is a world flooded with who God truly is. This morning, I think it was last night, um, Eliana and I we were talking a little bit about Jesus and how he loved on people. And I was thinking of explaining the gospel to people and how some understand, some don't understand, and what I can do to explain it better, uh, make people understand. I know I can't make them understand, but to do as good as what I can as pertaining to sharing the gospel accurately. And we were discussing Jesus and what people understood by the time he died and was raised from the dead. Jesus gave his life to people they didn't understand anything that he said. They understood very little. There was even a time when Jesus says, how long will I still be with you before you truly understand? And then they just got this glimpse of understanding, and Jesus said, the time has come that I should be glorified. And then he said, the Holy Spirit will come later, and then he will explain to you in a better way. So Jesus was showing all of his compassion, all of his love, everything he did to people that were very legalistic, that believed uh, everything was about their flesh as being Jews, and they were thinking that this Jesus was there to bring forth a kingdom, the kingdom of God, wherein the Gentiles, the people that they were uh, against, the Roman oppression, as well as people like the um, Samaritans, whom they hated, that God is now going to take their part uh, through the Messiah and help them. Jesus still gave his life to people like that. He lived amongst them. He loved on them. And that is a very high quality of life. That's the eternal life that God has. And he's come to share that life with us. That is a possibility 
for us. We can share in that kind of a life. And we're going to look at the compassion that God has, and I trust that it will enrich you today, and not just enrich you into understanding what it is about and how much God loves you, but also in um, in bringing forth the power of this gospel to the point where you can be a co-sharer in that quality of life in this world. Because in this world, we want people to understand us, but we find that there's a lot of people that don't understand us. Sometimes we don't even understand ourselves, and we are confused about our own feelings and emotions and so forth. And what about a life that is constant and a life that is stable even in the midst of things like that in the world that's the kind of life jesus has and he's come to give it to us the gospel is not just about how much god loves you it is we can put it this way it's about the kind of love that he has and what it amounts to wherein we share in his life okay um i can put it this way let me just use one example as pertaining to that A good friend of mine came here the other day and he bought himself a nice, very fast car. And he said to me, uh, Pastor Berti, come with me. I I want you to just take you for a drive with this car. And he gave me the keys. He says, you drive the car and just feel, you know, what it can do, zero to 60 kind of a thing. Why would he want to share that with me? Why would he want to do that? It is something that is nice to him. He enjoys driving that car. To him, it's abundance. To him, it is a blessing. To him, it is, uh, man, we would we, we would just think of it as what we would talk amongst each other. He would say to me, Pastor Bertie, you are just like me. You're a petrol head. You know, you like cars and you like motorbikes. You like those kind of things. And uh, it's maybe just a man thing, you know, and I want you to share with me in my life. And that's why he would give me the key and say, you drive the car and feel what it feels like. I think Jesus has got the very same thing. He's got, and God the Father, he's got this love for people and he wants people to take the key and drive the car, to feel what it feels like to share in his life what is going on inside the depths of God. That's what it is all about. It is always more blessed to give than what it is to receive, but we have to receive before we can give give but at the end of the day the life that we share in with God is a life that is just like his thank God that the love of God is of such a power that it is not a command but it is a fruit and that's what we talk about right let us just pray together as we then uh, before we get right into the message father thank you for your love and your grace that you have towards us thank you that you care for us And thank you that this message can be preached with clarity and that you love your people. Thank you for your compassion towards us that brings forth your life in us. Amen. Okay, we're going to read from Luke chapter 10 and I'm reading from verse 25. It says, On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the background of this could be that they were saying Jesus was maybe against the law or against the traditions of the fathers and something like that. And now he is testing him. They could try and find a a reason to put him in a bad light and so forth. Jesus gave the perfect answer. He says, what is written in the law? And he replied, how do you read it? So you just put the question back to him and say, okay, what, what do you think? And what Jesus does is, and this is beautiful, he says, what does the law say about this? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that was a perfect answer. And Jesus have answered, he said, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, we that know the gospel of grace and know the fulfillment of the law, we can look at this and we can think, how did Jesus give such an answer and say, well, just go and do the law and you will live forever? Well, it's very simple. If you truly love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, 
you will come to the conclusion of the gospel. You will see what the law truly says. The law will tell you that all people cannot have eternal life by their own power and that the fullness of the law is God's love towards man, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment or the fullness of what the law truly says. The law is simply saying this, we by our own power cannot have eternal life or we don't have eternal life residing inside us. Uh, and it is a gift from God. Now, part of this, I just have to throw this in. Uh, it's very difficult for us to understand what the law says sometimes, especially in our Gnostic world where we think that we are eternal immortal spirits that indwells a physical body we first have to realize that we are truly mortal every part of our being because that is what the law tells you the law is telling you that you cannot live by yourself you don't have access to eternal life but through Jesus he is uh, the hope we can have and he's the promise of eternal life and through him we will have eternal life. What the law simply says is you are a mortal being but eternal life is a gift from God. Believe upon Jesus. That's what the law says at the end of the day. So Jesus tells this um, lawyer that you have the right answer. They just do it and live. But he wanted to justify himself and he asked Jesus and who is my neighbor? Now, that is a very good question. Who is my neighbor? Because we can see the difficulty they would have had with the Samaritans and what happened about 722 before Christ. Uh, the, um, they were taken the northern part of is the northern part the 10 northern tribes called Israel was taken into captivity and they've never returned. And because they've never returned and the people of Samaria that came and colonized that area, they were now uh, mixing with the Jewish nations. They weren't pure, pure Jews anymore, and they brought their idols. The northern tribes were worshiping idols, and those were called the Samaritans. So according to the Jewish law, as what we would find the southern tribes, which would be Benjamin and Judah, called Judah in the Bible. So if you read the Old Testament and you find Judah and you find Israel, it's actually the Israelites but the northern tribes were called Israel, the southern two tribes were called Judah. Uh, they hated each other because these, what we would call the Jews or the southern tribes, they said, man, these northern tribes, they aren't even Jews. They have, we hate them. They are not the people of God at all, where they said, no, they are the people of God. They said Israel is not the right place where the temple should be built. And they had their hatred for each other. So now, who is my neighbor would be a very interesting question. Listen to what Jesus says. He didn't tell this parable. And what he's doing now is he's going to tell the story of humanity. That is what he's about to do. Jesus replies, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And uh, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him from his clothes and they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Amazing, the priest goes down the very same road. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, his wounds, poured out oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may, you may have. He then goes on, it says, which of these three do you think was the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So what are we seeing here? 
We're seeing the story of humanity. When you think of Jerusalem, you think of Jerusalem as the city of God. And Jericho, I went and studied this out a bit, it was called the city of the moon or the moon city. And some people, some scholars say that it was because they worshipped the moon. So imagine going from the place where God lives to a place where you're worshipping the moon. Now we all know that the moon is a reflection of the sun. It's the light of the sun that shines on the moon and then the moon reflects the light of the sun and so gives light. I do believe that that was a type and a shadow of what Adam was as well as what Israel was. Israel was supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles, but it was supposed to be a reflection of the light of God. But they then started to think that they are the light and they start to boast in their own flesh, the very thing that happened to Adam. We know that the moon does not have light in itself. And I think we need to understand that is what God also tried to say when he made man. He made man from the dust of the earth. The dust of the earth. Dust in the Hebrew there means like a gray dust, a powder, or one of the words there is even the rubbish of the earth. The word earth is the word in the Hebrew, Adama. Now, when God made man, he, um, he named man, he gave man a name. And the name of man was, and what he called him, was Adam. So if God was made, excuse me, if man was made from the dust of the earth, and God names him after the earth, that name that he gives him would be typical of what he truly is and he called him of the earth that is basically the name that he gave him the name he gave him was of the earth or the best way we can see that in first corinthians 15 is paul says the first man adam was of the earth and then he describes his nature he says he's earthy and God also described the nature of man, and that is that should man stand in the solitude of himself, that he will simply return back to the dust of the earth. And he said that to Adam when he sinned. He says, dust you are, and unto dust you will return. So God was not confused about man's identity and what man was. God knows that man is dust. That's why he would even call man, he's, the name he would give uh, man is after the very nature of man or the ability that he would have just by himself. That is earthiness. He's earthy. He is of the earth. When he sinned, he says, dust you are. The Bible also says in uh, Psalm 103 verse 14, 15, it says, God loves us and has pity on us and has compassion on us as what a father would have on his son. He knows our nature, knows that we are simply dust. So it is not an issue to God that we are dusty, if you want to call it like that. It's not an issue to God that we don't have eternal life in ourselves by ourselves. It is not a prerequisite to be the people of God. Uh, if God wants to give us life and he wants us to have his life, we should not have life in ourselves by ourselves in order to be fully sharing in his life. So God made man from the dust of this. It was not an issue. And we find here uh, in, um, in the story of Adam and Eve, if we go and look at Genesis, that man came to a point where he was partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which simply means, I mean, we can look at this from all sides, but I've, after studying that for a long time, I've come to this conclusion, and this is my opinion, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is when you are saying that I am pushing God away, I don't want life from him, I believe that I have life in myself. The right that I have unto eternal life is in my very design. That is my righteousness. I stand in the righteousness of who I am in the physical, what I am. We see a good example of that in the Jews. If you would ask a Jew, what right do you have to the promises of God? 
What makes you think that, that God should fulfill that promise to you? What right do you have to have a relationship with God? What right do you have to have uh, God even have anything to do with you? You would say, well, this is the right that I have. I am of the seed of Abraham, and then I am circumcised, and I am following the life of God's people. I'm living according to the law. But the greatest right, according to them, would simply be that I am a Jew. I'm just talking a language or an Israelite. We can call it like that. I'm a descendant of Abraham and circumcised. Circumcision and being of the right lineage was very, very important. So uh, what that would mean is they would boast in their flesh. What gives them the right to life is carried inside their flesh. And that is what I would call, to a certain degree, moon worship, is where you are saying that the moon has got a light in himself. The Jews thought that they were the light unto the world. They were only to reflect the true light. That's what we also find Paul say in Corinthians. He says, when I behold the glory of God... I behold as in a mirror, and if you read the context of 2 Corinthians 3, he's not talking about a revelation as you're looking at Jesus, now you get a revelation of who you are. No, you, he's, what he's saying is, is, I look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus, I'm seeing Jesus was raised from the dead, and now I take this message, and I'm reflecting it to people by preaching that truth to them. That's the reflection. Paul never came to a place where he said, I am a source of light. Um, Jesus just reveals who I am, that kind of a thing. And that is what Adam did wrong. Adam went and he tried to become his own God. And God said to him, if you do that, you'll just discover what you truly are. You're not truly a God. You're just the image or the, the reflection. So the true light is over here. Here's a mirror. It shines on the mirror like a moon and it reflects. Now, the moment you start to worship yourself, it's by my own power, by my own life, but what I am in the flesh, you are on your way to Jericho. You are busy down the path where you are going to die. And that is the Genesis story. Now, when man was found on his way there to have been robbed and stripped of his clothing and he was there naked, that's exactly the story of Adam and Eve. They, after they, the murderer of man came in the beginning and they, he had his dealings with Adam and Eve, they found Adam found himself naked, half dead, next to the road. That half dead is simply referring to what God said to Adam. The day you eat thereof, your death would be imminent. I don't have time to explain that, but when you look in the Hebrew where it says, uh, you will surely die, there are different ways of looking at that. And I think the most accurate way of looking at that, uh, you will surely die, is to basically say that your death would be imminent. Now, since you are already from the dust of the earth, you're made of the earth, there's a promise of life. But the moment you don't, not taking hold of the promise of life and taking what God freely wants to give you, and you start to become a worshiper of yourself and think that you, ha you are a source of life, uh, your death would be definite. When God made man from the dust of the earth, there was a probability that they might not partake of life. But if they've rejected God and eat of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, they will definitely die. Their death would be uh, uh, imminent. In other words, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's a sure thing that you will die. And we find that Adam did die and he did return to the dust of the earth. But thank God for compassion. Thank God for the good Samaritan. Now, with the condition that man is in, uh, Jesus then told this lawyer that there came a priest and there came a Levite. Now that talked about the whole Levitical priesthood and the service in the temple and the sacrifices and the helpers of the priests and all that was going on in the Levitical priesthood under which they received the law. And they passed by on the other side when they saw the person. Now, I went and read up a little bit on this, what that 
seeing the person, we get the idea that, you know, they were passing by and they just glimpsed there's a guy over there, he's dying, oh, I don't want anything to do with that, and they went on the other side of the road. It doesn't really mean that. It is the sense of looking at the person, seeing the person there was, you took some good notice of his condition. You saw uh, the condition that he really was in, and then you simply went to the other side. So it wasn't just like having a glimpse. It was really considering this and deciding, I can't help this person, or I'm not going to help this person. And what Jesus is saying is, is that the law cannot help man or the Levitical priesthood cannot help man out of the condition that he is in. Someone else needs to come. And then pointing to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which I did pre- preach on a lot of a lot of the time. But now with that said, and I'm not going to spend more time on that, uh, Jesus then goes and he says, but there was a Samaritan that traveled by. Now, Samaritan would be somebody that is completely rejected, obviously pointing to Jesus Christ, who was treated like a Samaritan by the Jews, uh, somebody that was an outcast, because imagine you now, uh, this man is a carpenter's son. He is um, he's mixing with sinners, and he now is being said to be the Messiah. No, they will treat him like as if he's dirty. They will say he mixed with sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He's not falling into the category which we think he needs to fall in. He's not a zealot. He's not even going to take up the sword. He even said, you know, if you try and live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. He, he is the fool that said you must love your enemies. He is contradicting scripture, you know, saying, uh, you know, if somebody takes something from you, giving, give him more and those kind of things. That's what they would have thought. They would have treated Jesus, and that's how Jesus was also treated. It was like a Samaritan. But listen to this. This Samaritan, something happened. It says here, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, that word to take pity was used in the four Gospels 12 times, and it is translated as he feels sorry for them, he felt pity, or he had some compassion, and so forth on him. But the translation of that word is critiqued by um, Brennan Manning, and he says that the true etymological meaning of that word is not portrayed by the word Pity, compassion, maybe a little bit more. Uh, the Afrikaans word for that is meerder uh, layer. Meerder uh, means together with, and layer is suffering, co-suffering, together suffering. That is uh, what the Afrikaans Miedaleya would mean, uh, which I think compassion is a little bit closer because compassion, you get the word com, uh, which comes from a Latin word C-U-M, which simply means together with. And then passion is what you would get the passion of the Christ. If you get study out Acts, you find his passion was the suffering he had upon the cross. So Compassion would mean that you co-sharing in the very suffering and in the very pain of that person. That word splachnitzomai, uh, uh, which is a verb, comes from a word splachma, which means the spleen or the core or the spine or the intestines of a person which Manning then says refers to the Hebrew word rakamim, which talks about the very womb of Yahweh, which talks about that which gives birth unto life. And he translates this word as follows. He says when the Bible talks about Jesus Christ having compassion on someone, he was basically saying his gut was wrenched. His heart burst open. He became vulnerable. 
and the most vulnerable part of his being was laid bare. He came to a point where he would basically disgrace himself. He'll make himself vulnerable. I'm thinking of uh, a Jewish father, uh, you know, that would not, and it was not, uh, and even today, older men don't run. Well, we've got the culture of exercise, but the moment you run and you are in a hurry and you're running up and down, it's a kind of a sign that you're not in control. You're not really having everything in order. It points to your weakness. But when Jesus or when the father saw the prodigal son coming home, he started running towards him. He had compassion on him. The innermost part of his being was laid bare. He ran. He didn't care what people would think. Imagine yourself. Um, I mean, any respectable person. You don't want to be naked at an airport standing in front of everybody. I mean, that is an absolute disgrace. Now imagine God being willing to become a man and to co-share in our pain because we were left naked, half dead, dying next to the road. And now he has compassion. He's got co-suffering and what that would mean is for the almighty God that is clothed in all light and all life and all glory to be put on a cross hanging naked hanging naked as a human being and sorry for saying it this way but having your private parts exposed for everybody to look at you in that disgrace but that is the co-suffering and the, 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 the pain that was found in the heart of God. And I want to tell you, the pain that was in the body of Jesus that he experienced on the cross was a manifestation of what God was already feeling in his heart. In order for that to manifest and become true and to materialize, it had to be something that was already carried inside the very being of God. And that is why Manning uh, translates that, and it's just like you would say a free translation, his own opinion. He translates that word as saying, the ground of all being shook. Imagine that all being, that is God, the, the ground of all being is God himself. Imagine that. His, heart, his gut was wrenched. His heart broke open. The most vulnerable part of his very being was laid bare. God is the source of all life. Imagine the source of all life trembles. I apologize for the example that I'm using, but it will give you an idea on what is in the, the anguish in the heart of God. Imagine your child. I'm thinking of a good friend of mine, Dirk van Rensburg. He one day called me, he said to me, my child has drowned. He was already at the bottom of the swimming pool. He, he fell in his lungs, became full of water. He was in the bottom of the swimming pool. The feeling that you get when you see that, that is what you would say the ground of all being shook. The source of all life tremble. And then the heart of all love burst open. The most vulnerable part of God's being is laid bare the, and the relentless tenderness of God gushes forth. That's what happened upon the cross. That is what God felt when he was running into the garden when Adam was lost and he said, Adam, where are you? And with that truth in mind, listen, a parable is always based on truth. 
When Jesus tells a parable, there's a reality that he's putting into a story. And the reality that he's seeing is he's seeing the anguish in the heart of the Almighty God. He sees himself. He comes to the revelation in Psalm 40. Um, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not want, but a body have you prepared for me. So what he's saying is, is he didn't want sacrifice and offerings. What he wanted was he wanted a body that could uh, give a new birth to mortal man where man was dying and he was going to waste where he can be made new, that new creation can come forth, that these people of God can live forever. That is what is that is what Jesus is, is is telling there. He says, "And this Samaritan came, and he f- took pity on him." He was saying, "The Samaritan, he's being shook." You know, when you see some, uh, uh, I remember the other day, a while back, we drove past the accident scene, and when you look at what's going on there, your being shakes. You find you trembling. You start to feel your your heartbeat goes up. You feel something is wrong. That is not made for man. This is not what is supposed to be. You find your stomach turn. The the old Hebrew people spoke about that, and they called it. It, it was talking about the organs inside a human being. And that is the language that's used when this, when the Bible talks about compassion, referring to the compassion of God. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Jesus Christ said, if you read Luke 4.16, referring to Isaiah, he says, he opens the scripture and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. What does this this Samaritan do? He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring out oil and wine, the very life and ability of God, bringing healing. He says, then he put the man on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. When Adam entered into death, it brought forth the care of God. And I want to say to you, you have to come to a place where you see God's care, not just as emotions in the heart of God, which is great. But that emotion inside the heart of God would simply be almost like a noun. It would just talk about the place and and what can take place. But when you look at the verb, when you look at the action of it, that is what God has on us. And we need to say, God, what happened in your heart was manifested in the death, the burial, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to grapple with that. We need to say, God, what does that mean? What does an empty grave mean? What does a resurrected human being seated at the right hand of God mean? What does that uh, that person saying, believe me, trust in me, I am the Lord? What does it mean that God would give humanity into the hands of such a person? What does it mean to you? How, how does that impact you? And as we see that and we start to understand what this gospel is about, just want to say this, you know, Paul in Acts 14, he went and he preached to the people and he said to them when they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas, he said to them, we've come to preach good news to you that you can stop to worship idols. That was part of the gospel. 
The gospel was you don't have to worship idols anymore. Like one of the gods they served was the god of the hunt. And it was also the god of fertility. And what they would do is they would say, well, if the things aren't going our way and we want to please this god, one of the things they did, and sorry for saying this the way it it happened, is that men would go to an altar and offer their private parts on the altar to worship this god. Imagine the good news that you don't have to worship idols anymore. You don't have to worship these gods that are looking for sacrifices, but you are looking now at a God that has prepared a body to save your body so that you can have life. Glory to God. He had compassion. He put him on his own animal. So it could have been that he was riding on that animal and now he's saying, I'll get off the animal, I will walk, I will go through difficulty, I'll carry the pain and I'll put him on the animal, I will bind up his wounds and then I'll take him to a place, I will pay for him to be cared for and then when I return and there was any outstanding fee, which we know there is nothing outstanding, but even if it would be, we find the heart of God that he is saying that I would even pay that. I think that would refer to that if, uh, if our bodies are not made immortal uh, and we have died in the resurrection, that our bodies would be raised from the dead and whatever needs to be done by him to restore us so that we can share in the fullness of his life, that he can give the keys to us in a certain sense and say, take my life for a drive and feel what it feels like, that it can take place. Now, with that said, we're going to go a little bit over time today in our message. I would like to go to Galatians chapter 1 verse 16. Or, yeah, let's go to Galatians 1 verse 16. I did make a message on this in this week, uh, talking a little bit about being in Christ and Christ in you, what that means. And I, I think, let's not go there. Let's go to um, first. Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 15. I will just paint the picture quickly of Paul. Paul was persecuting the church. Do you know what persecuting the church would look like in the parable of the Good Samaritan? That would be somebody that goes to the inn and start to kill the person that's being cared for by the innkeeper because you just simply think it is a good thing to do and that you're going to save your own faith to make sure that that person is destroyed. That would mean that you're doing the work of the robber that was robbing the person that was on his way um, to the moon city and on the way he got killed or not killed, left half dead, unclothed, and he's busy dying, and now the Messiah comes and helps him, and when he leaves him just for a moment to be cared for by an innkeeper, you'll go in there and make sure that the job that was started is done properly. That is what Paul was busy with. That's where he was. He was on his way to Damascus to, with a letter from the Sanhedrin that he could take people bound to Jerusalem and that they could stop this whole thing of the church. On the way there, the Messiah appeared to him and saved him and then thought it good to, in Paul, show forth his salvation power. He showed it in Jesus, and he shows in Paul what it could mean. And Paul's got a certain conclusion about this whole thing. He said that God decided to reveal in Christ in him. And he would reveal Christ in the Gentiles. What does that mean? Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason, because I am the worst, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. So Paul says, here am I, the worst of all sinners. He saved me. He saved me. He saved him from being a murderer. He saved him from uh, his wrong understanding of how the law works and what Messiah truly is. How did he save Paul? He appeared to Paul. What did Paul do? He repented and he believed upon Jesus. When Paul's life was then changed as the worst of sinners, Christ and what he's about was revealed in Paul in that he saves sinners as an example for those who would believe that they can see Jesus is a savior of sinners. Now, with that said, we go to 1 Corinthians. I, I did speak about this, I think, last Sunday and in some of the daily devotionals, but I want to mention it again. Paul says, now he writes to the Corinthians, a bit of background to the, of the Corinthians. They worshipped, uh, not all of them, obviously there were many gods worshipped, but one of the gods was called Bacchus. He's the god of alcohol, the god of um, wine making, drunkenness and disorder. The way wherein he was worshipped was like this. People would drink, most of them would be women. Uh, there were a few men involved, but mostly it would be women. It was, uh, they would get drunk to the point that they are drunk out of their minds. They would then, as they are in this absolute drunkenness, start to think of, remember, this is now in worshiping their God, start to feel the feeling of this God with them. They would then make animal noises. They would be making noise like sheep and cattle and birds and whatever. That's the kind of noises they would make in absolute chaos. They would worship this Bacchus and that would also uh, involve orgies and those kind of things. They would do this in the streets as well. It was such chaos that Rome had certain started to get in some laws against it to get some order. This is the kind of people that they were in Corinth. And we know, if we and we can extrapolate from 1 Corinthians, that uh, there had to be people that were of these Corinthians, uh, of those, that worship that was in the church. Because you find that, um, you know, they would start to make noise and all those kind of things in the church, which would look, and I don't, I'm not going to spend time on that. It will just be another 10 minutes, but I'm not going to spend time on that. Uh, you know, which would be a kind of way wherein they thought when we feel the Holy Spirit, let us just burst out loud in tongues in a, in a disordered manner. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. That is how it works when you worship Bacchus. But that's not how it works in the church. We're going to have some order here. It's not a, uh, we're not the God, this is not the God of disorder. This is the God of order. We're not getting drunk here. When they saw communion, they thought, well, this is time to get drunk. It's like the same God's mix in that, that is, um, I don't say it is 100% like that, but I do think that there's reason for us to believe that it, uh, it could easily be. And there are many people that, um, in their commentaries, follow along those lines of thought giving the background all of that said listen to what paul says to the people in corinth i always thank my god for you because of his grace given you in jesus christ for in him you have been enriched in every way who was enriched these people that were worshipping the false gods, with all kinds of speech you were enriched and in all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you and Christ's work in you. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, 
the God of all compassion, the one whose, who, who, whose very being shakes when he sees man in distress, whose heart bursts open, where the most vulnerable part of his being is laid bare, where the divine tenderness, the relentless tenderness of God is made available for humanity, where it was dripping it was laid bare, it was dripping from a cross into the soil. That dead person, that man, was then put into a grave, raised from the dead, put on display for all to see. That one saved Paul, the chief of all sinners. And you know what? He was even found doing his very work amongst the people in Corinth, saving people, changing their lives. He was raised from the dead. He appeared to Paul so that in Paul an example could be made of what Jesus is about. He's about to save people. He took Paul from one that would take lives to one that would give his life. How did it take place? He appeared to Paul. Paul believed. Paul received the Holy Spirit. He was baptized, repented, received the life of Jesus. His life is an example for all those who would still believe upon him to receive eternal life. So I want to tell you, with that said, I come to this conclusion. As we receive this, we also receive the key to God's life wherein we can take it for a ride and feel what it feels like. And as we receive this absolute compassion of God, what we can expect is when we see somebody in pain, we will find that we are co-sharing in the wrenching that took place in the very gut of God, that our heart also bursts open and that we find relentless tenderness towards those who sin against us, towards those who we think are great sinners and wrong, where we feel our life goes out towards them, to those that we think that has never heard the gospel, that needs to hear the gospel. We find that our heart opens up and it bursts forth in generosity and kindness and love towards people that when God looked at them that he would give his son and we as what God's gut got wrenched and he gave his life and he shared in our life we now find that we are sharing in his life and we go and do likewise empowered by the very life of God amen and amen that is the message that I have for you today I want to tell you that God loves you dearly. He cares for you with his whole being and he has put that on display. And as you hear this gospel, you are at a place where you are challenged by the love of the Almighty God to believe upon and rely upon him, receive the Holy Spirit and have his life. Thank you that I could serve you with this good news. We'll talk again then next week. God bless.